This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Hello and welcome to the Llama podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama Live Long and Master Aging is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Today, how do we use computers and computer technology to ensure that we live long and healthy lives? I'm in Playa Vista in California at the tech campus of the University of Southern California, USC, to meet Dr. Leslie Saxon, who is the executive director of USC's Center for Body Computing. Founded almost 11 years ago, the center develops digital solutions to healthcare using apps and sensors to monitor the way our bodies function. Leslie, it's great to see you. Thank you, Peter. I'm so happy to be here. This is Silicon Beach, isn't it? What has become known as Silicon Beach. It is. And the USC Institute for Creative Technologies has been here close to, I think, 11 years. We've been here the last three or four years. This institute uh, specializes in mixed and immersive reality uh, solutions for the military and other uses, medical as well. So what do you do on the campus? What we do is we um, really envision and create the future platform for the delivery of healthcare uh, to the world. And that's this idea that much of our healthcare information, healthcare diagnostics, and even treatment can be achieved uh, without a person ever having to come into the walls of a medical center. Well, let's talk in much more detail about that. I'd like, first of all, though, to start actually with you and, and talk about how you got to this place in your career. Where did you train as a doctor? So I'm a interventional cardiologist who spent my whole career uh, doing clinical trials and clinical medicine. I was at UCLA, uh, University of California, San Francisco, and then USC, where I had a very traditional career doing clinical trials, uh, ran the division of cardiovascular medicine there for a number of years. I implant sophisticated cardiac devices in the heart to prolong survival from malignant arrhythmias and to, to treat a very common condition called heart failure. And when those devices became capable of network transmission, meaning that we could interrogate a device from a patient's home every day versus seeing them intermittently uh, throughout the year with these expensive devices implanted, I realized that there was a great potential for providing kind of a continuous model of healthcare to people because the devices would download very important data and provide warnings that adverse events were going to occur so we could treat on demand or when we had an accurate predictor of a medical condition, and we showed that that really improved outcomes in those groups of patients who had those devices. That was like 2008. And at the same time, there was this growth of digital, and the mobile phone, internet-connected phone, became the sort of dominant computing platform of our time in the hands of billions of people, which seemed like a great way to deliver healthcare. Cloud-based storage, uh, the ability to handle video, and the ability of mobile and mobile applications to integrate felt, all of this felt like a very um, important maturation technically for us to be able to use digital infrastructure and the mobile phone as a way to deliver healthcare uh, cheaper and more efficiently. I think the 
patient of the future does not want, is not going to want to interact with the walls of a healthcare system. Our number one reason for patients missing appointments is parking. Hmm. One of the great myths, I think, uh, that, that is currently around is that elderly patients will not be able to interact with digital tools, which I think is absolutely false. And just going back to, you explained how you trained as a doctor, it was a traditional training, and clearly a lot of this technology wasn't available to them. Is it fair to say, and I've spoken to a number of doctors for this podcast, uh, to, to say that training at that point in time was more focused on treating the disease as opposed to anticipating the disease and, and spotting it beforehand? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just in my area of cardiology, I remember when my first lecture as a cardiology fellow, I was training in Chicago at that time, the person came in and he said, a normal cholesterol is 300, and now it's 200. And I was thinking, that's awful high. <laughs> but, you know, statin use and all of that. And so we were, we were really treating a lot of acute heart attacks, a lot of weak heart muscles. We had our hands full just, just treating the acute events. And, and uh, it has progressed enormously um, to an area we now, call, we now call primary prevention, which is preventing mm-hmm. an event from happening versus the way I spent my entire training career, secondary prevention, meaning um, once an event has occurred, kind of limiting the damage and treating patients from that standpoint. So, And I wonder, was there a, people describe the light bulb moment as you were moving, progressing in your career and learning about the new technology that you realized the potential of what it could do for you as a doctor and for the patient. Yeah, there were like 17 light bulb moments, but I remember one of them since we're coming up on the 25th anniversary of um, the LA riots. And I was um, at UCLA Medical Center doing a late case and I was driving home and there was kind of pandemonium on my way home and I was kind of worried about myself because it was like one in the morning. And at that point I had a mobile phone, a new mobile phone and a beeper. And I thought, oh, if somebody pulls me out of my car you know, I can actually call someone for help. And then I started thinking about that because that motivated my thinking about mobile. And I started thinking about what if patients had mobile phones and they, what if I didn't need a beeper and I could just have people call me on my mobile phone and I didn't have to have two devices. Similarly, when the devices I implant became networked, I was so busy implanting them that I rarely had time to see outpatients. I couldn't, I, I was too busy in the operating room. So I thought, oh, if I can follow patients over this network, they'll have this umbrella of care for me, and all I have to do is sit in front of a computer and look at their, the readings from their device and, and maybe make a phone call. And then I started thinking, well, what if patients could call me? And then with email and email compliance, I said, look, I, I'm just going to tell my patients to email me and give them my cell phone because that's easier than me making the 17 calls I need. So there are all sorts of points along the way when I – light bulbs went off for me. And how did that lead to you establishing this organization, the Center for Body Computing? I wanted to kind of aggregate the expertise that would be needed to deliver these things. For instance, at one point I thought, I finish work at seven and the reason I can't have dinner with my kids is that I spend from seven to 8.30 calling 15 different people on the same issue. Can't I build an app for that? So one of the first things I did is I wanted to build a new, you know, these were new software. I wanted to build a new software application where I could manage my patients, their referring doctors, and their family members in one app. So if I pushed a button, the same information went to everybody. It was a very simple kind of text app related to problems with their device or issues with their device. So I wanted to solve, you know, problems for myself and patients. The other thing is I was running the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine, I realized since I got every single complaint that ever occurred around a cardiology patient was 
that medicine has no real service model. We can't create this concierge level of service because of the difficulty in communication flow. And digital can really solve many of those problems. And I'm particularly interested in human longevity and, and those things that we can do to help ourselves essentially live a, a long and healthy life. And, and what you do, the scenarios that you're describing really fall right into that because it's a, an everyday process of making sure that you, as you have been describing, you can monitor how you are existing and, and how you are responding to the environment around you, whether that is diet or exercise and how your body is likely to be looking in say 10 or 20 years time when as you're getting older but the work starts now absolutely i think our younger people will be shocked that we never monitored our bodies and didn't have the kind of knowledge that they will have around self-monitoring to really make a big difference in understanding and positive aging i think we have to give autonomy and education back to patients, that they have to make their own discovery. And this will be a discovery process that happens from the time you're a child through all your health to uh, aging and more chronic disease. But it will be built on this strong foundation of comfort and um, much less of a a fear-driven culture around the inevitability of aging and some chronic medical conditions. And I think that that will make a huge difference. Um, People even with um, a fifth of Americans wearing some kind of activity tracker like the Fitbit, that's already really changed the culture in terms of folks' awareness of just directionally when to get up and and the fact that they've not moved or what, what it is to move the right amount in a day or to set goals. But I think if we're going to be able to augment that so much with these really compelling experiences that help people learn their body and give them aha moments throughout the day in their life, and they'll feel better, and that will further motivate them. And this will all connect into a system where um, the people they care about can know about it, um, their care providers, and they'll just have an enormous amount more autonomy. I think there's a, a real importance in having context to healthcare. What is it about the environment I'm in now that's healthy or unhealthy versus where I was yesterday? What are the trends that I might not be aware of this week or, or last week, both for myself or anyone I care about? How do I get individualized information about that, um, that will help guide a decision. Um, maybe it's a dietary decision. Maybe it's where to live. Maybe it's where to go. Maybe it's where not to go for myself or my children or the people I care about. And during the 10, almost 11 years existence of the center, what you're talking about right now, it's become mainstream. We are almost unwittingly wearing these devices that they're built into our watches. It has become part of everyday life. And I think some of us will use them more than others, but it's become very acceptable now. It's a very common occurrence for me to take an elderly person with a smartphone, say an iPhone, and for me to say, what have you been doing? And they kind of tell me what they've been doing activity-wise. And I say, may I have your phone? And I look into the uh, built-in application on their phone, HealthKit, and I show them that in the times that they've carried their phone, this is the activity they've done, and they're just amazed. They don't even know that this device has tracked their activity. Which leads me to my next question, which was going to be, how do you educate an aging population that this technology exists to help them? Because I think of all the populations, this is the one that's the most reluctant sometimes to change and accept that there's something as weird and wonderful as uh, something on their arm that can help them every day with their physical exercise or what they're eating or to change their attitudes towards things. I think that's a very sensitive and accurate comment, both for my years of seeing elderly patients and my experience with my own folks. 
there is a kind of a fear that that can happen with aging and a lack of mobility and and a little bit of a defensiveness as to how to how to solve this. On the other hand, there is an incredibly strong desire to retain autonomy and independence. So I think that digital meets that strong unmet need of how do I convince myself and others that I'm safe, that I'm able to function independently, and how do I get guidance on on my own time, not when I'm confronted, but when I'm ready to use these tools and engage with them. That's a big thing. It's a very difficult conversation to have when your spouse or your child is in a room and you're unclothed with a doctor and everybody's accusing you of not being the person that you were. There's a very different digital conversation that can happen where people are encouraging you for activity, where you're getting cues and education uh, on demand when you want and need them, and you have the trust in the system that it's actually helping you stay independent. I think that's a very different experience that that people can have. And if people are comfortable receiving that in a phone call or through their television versus on a smaller screen, or if they want to look at it on an iPad, that's that's fine. There's also, you know, this other thing that has happened, which is the Internet of Things, right? So how do we use things within, say, a home or an environment where an elderly, that an elderly person encounters a lot to also help provide them with information and insight that they might otherwise not be able to have. Like you need to take more, this is a co- very common problem, you need to drink more because my refrigerator tells me, you, you know, you, you keep forgetting to take in the hydration, you, you know, that you need. And that's then people start to say, oh, I don't feel as well because when I, the days that I don't drink enough and they start to connect the dots themselves. And as a physician talking to people in this population, what argument do you use to persuade them that they need to move with the times and that it can be helpful? Well, like many things in, in medicine that I, I work on and think about a lot and with my own parents, first you have to build the trust because if the trust isn't there, People, uh, if they feel that you're going to undermine them or betray them or take away something that they value and are afraid of losing, like their independence, that's kind of a non-starter. So I think you have to build the trust that you that you both have the same goals, and that um, this is a continuum, and you're not trying to um, pull the rug out from under them. So we spend a lot of time doing that, and then understanding a, a person's unique needs uh, educationally and otherwise, and then trying to build solutions for them that they can engage with. Just going back to the basics of of what we can monitor on a daily basis, what would you say is the most important? I think probably the most familiar to people is steps. We count our 10,000 steps and that's become the benchmark, I think, in terms of exercise. But is there something that you would focus on? Yeah, I think the things like activity is huge. Safe activity in the elderly is very important. Confidence that they're not going to fall. Hydration and diet are huge. So the amount that you drink and then diet. And then if medication is is a part of the, the picture, then medication adherence and really good ways to help people understand when to take their medicine and, and important ways for them to report if they think they're having adverse effects and not to be ignored and finding the right dosage for patients. And it's a very complicated thing to manage a medical condition. And so I think we do a very poor job at really helping people have the tools that they need. It also has to be easy. In the Internet of Things, there should be a way to come out of the shower safely, step on a scale, get your blood pressure taken, walk to your refrigerator, and all this should go somewhere and then be reported back to you in a very simple interface, in a very simple way that you can understand 
where you are and what you're doing, what you might need support in, how you can support others even. Um, we think that the power of social networks is very important, particularly for the elderly who are often more isolated. It's always struck me, actually, that it's all very well to have this data, but it's the interpretation of the data that ultimately is going to do us some good. And the end user, the person who needs the data, is not me as the physician so much is very busy and may not frankly look at it if it's all good, but it's the patients. It's the person whose the data is being collected from who needs to interact with it and derive insights quite independent of the medical system or even their family, and then be able to contribute positively and be very active in their own in their own care and very much in control. What about the personal relationship? A thought struck me from what you just said about if I even look at it in terms of the doctor and the data. And I know that one thing that frustrates people is they go to the doctor, they have the blood test, the results come out and they're okay. The doctor doesn't even contact the patient to tell them that they're okay. And they're left thinking, are they okay? They're kind of left in the dark. Does technology like this yes, help it, to improve that relationship? Yeah, it's enormously frustrating. It's very complicated to do as a care provider. So if you have a mammogram and you don't hear, you don't know if that mammogram was negative or they lost it, right? Or, right. or so, so it's very important to have exception-based care. So what we try to do with these tools is a negative test or a, or a positive test. Every test is acted on. And not only that. The patient has access to the naked data. They can see the absolute lab value, the normative range. And many physicians, when we first present this, say, no, they can't handle it. They'll call me incessantly. We've actually checked this, and people call very little. In fact, they call less when they have more of the data. And if they call, sometimes they'll call a few times at first just to acclimate, and then they're they're basically silent and able to handle it, or their daughter or someone around them is. So I think it's absolutely imperative. Is there a danger that they'll go into a search engine and try to interpret the data themselves? I think so, but I think that's okay. That's the world that we live in. There should be that discovery. If a, I think if a comment is we need to start to interpret tests with the understanding that patients uh, and will be will be looking at the test results. So one issue, for instance, is um, that's common on, for instance, imaging studies. If someone gets a chest X-ray and they say something like, lung calcification recommend follow-up tests, suspicious, possibly suspicious for malignancy, right? This is something that can be worrisome. So I think that we need to have explanations and standards under those so people understand. But I think less things will also be missed if people have this data themselves. One thing that you have been looking at in considerable detail is the concept of the virtual doctor. Indeed, you are a, a virtual doctor. Can you explain how that sure. works? So I've created a, a virtual human me. We have a at the Institute for Creative Technology a way of rapidly prototyping um, a virtual human that looks and sounds like me and is animated with my voice and my intelligence, if you will, that is um, uses a a voice recognition artificial intelligence engine. So what that means is that my virtual human can answer 2,600 frequently asked questions that any patient may have about their heart arrhythmia. So imagine that you see me in the clinic and you have some further questions. You can pull up a mobile application and talk to the virtual me. And I can update that individual. That individual is current with the medical literature, knows all the recognize medical guidelines, but provide you with individualized information and learns from what you ask, and it gets better and better. She's always in the same mood. She's always um, professional, and she tells you what she doesn't know and refers you to the real me when you need her. 
But more importantly to me, not just to have this individual available for my uh, patients, but to have patients anywhere in the world know that there's a recognized expert that is highly competent that can answer their question across any medical condition. It's very important for the experts at USC to feel that we can leverage our knowledge over larger populations using digital. We can't physically go to Dubai or Bangladesh or any other place, but we can be present uh, virtually and provide the highest grade medical content and information and eventually get good enough that we can help diagnose. Is it fair to say that the virtual you is actually better than you because you're human and you yeah. can make mistakes and you can get tired? Absolutely. She certainly augments me. Um, and she, and I, we have data created in veterans and uh, active soldiers from the Institute for Creative Technologies showing that many patients, particularly for sensitive information or information where they may feel judged uh, by disclosing it to me, uh, that they disclose more to these virtual agents because they don't feel judged. And, you know, we're only as good as the data we get in, right, to make decisions. So I love the idea that this is an, a non-judgmental, feels like a very agnostic environment to, and supportive one to disclose. For me, it means that I can actually be available. And more of, more of the real me is available to patients who need me every day versus me seeing, say, 30 patients in clinic, 25 of whom I could have seen virtually, and the five that needed me I can actually spend significant enough time with to where they feel well cared for, and I feel that I'm in, in possession of all the information I need. So it's interesting, you just come back to what you said, it's, it's almost taking the embarrassment factor out of the, that one-to-one -one relationship between doctor and patient, and maybe to some extent the white coat syndrome that some people suffer from, that is just being ultra nervous in the presence of their doctor. Yeah, one of my friends who's a physician who works for a company that has a, a digital medicine where you take the medicine and it registers to a patch so everyone, including you, knows that you've taken it because medical regimens can get kind of complicated. But he said to me, when you walk into a room and you ask a patient, is he on the five medications he's supposed to be taking, he often feels that as, am I a good person? Or did I take my medicine today? And what we mean is a very different thing. It's do you have a steady blood level of the five medications you're supposed to be taking three times a day? So even, even something as simple as that. And to what extent is the concept of the virtual doctor a reality? It, you know, we're doing it. We're, we've built out the mobile applications. We're testing it. We're making the engine better. And we have to start with just delivering medical content. Then we actually, actually have to show that this virtual human doctor is safe and effective and can do more and more things. But a lot of that will depend on our, our learning engine. And so we see this as an enormous way to solve one of the most difficult problems facing humanity, that is delivering healthcare to people on demand with an internet-connected phone. I mean, that's huge. And then if you add in the sensors in the phone, the increasing body-worn diagnostic sensors, the potential is unbelievable. What about the potential to do large research studies over smartphones? enormous area of discovery there. Well, one of the huge challenges, of course, in medical research and scientific research generally is collecting data and big data from populations. And you can just see the potential here to follow the activity and the behavior and the responses of populations, not only in the United States, but across the world, people suffering from similar conditions, perhaps exposed to different environmental conditions. How is that affecting the disease that they're suffering from? No, one of the things I was on a conference call with a group of researchers at Harvard this morning we were talking about is, we we're talking about doing a, a large digital clinical trial. We were talking about 
measuring activity. And the way that we measure activity in many clinical trials is we bring patients in, we ask them how much they're doing, and then we have them do a little activity test in the clinic. Well, in this trial, we're going to be collecting activity from them pretty much during every waking hour, continuous activity measurement. So we are talking about what to make of that because we have no standards for that. So we're going to have to benchmark it to these more traditional measures. The, the geek in me says I'd love to be part of that. I know, because the, <laughs> the endpoints of the trials will be completely different. That's a unique challenge in itself, just trying to redefine these digital endpoints. I have a medical student working with me for the entire year next year, just creating patient cohorts with different diagnoses and, and diseases in order to study digital solutions in because we need to know how patients respond to these things. The UI, UX, what does the application look like? Does it resonate? Can you put your data in? How do you feel about it? Does this app work for you? You can see the huge potential here for aging research, because that's been one of the huge sticking points, studying aging. How does someone react to, again, the environmental conditions that they're living in, their diet, their exercise, over a period of, of decades. Up until now, it's just been impossible to, to collect that data. Absolutely. And I think this, this one big issue of people just moving less as they get older, what is that? You know, why is that? We don't understand that well enough. I'm sure it's a lot of different things, but let's get some insight into what are the things that are keeping people on the couch and how do we motivate them to get off of that and feel, feel safe? Is it depression? Is it hydration, nutrition, is it, you know, they are at increased risk for falls at self-preservation. And how do we, um, how do we convince people that moving is, um, while it may be inherently a little risky, it's also the number one predictor of being able to stay independent. And of course, the knowledge that you're being monitored, digitally monitored, is a motivation in itself, is it not, to do yeah. something because there's an accountability there. I think that's, that's a great point. I also think it will take a lot of the dysfunction out of aging. The, aging is very difficult, not only for patients, but it changes family relationships. And, and a lot of things could be better uh, in terms of people's personal relationships with aging and their family members if this data were just objective and there for everyone to look at. Because there's a lot of I did, you didn't kind of interaction that goes on. You can't argue with the numbers. Yeah, it's a good opportunity to... Um, build respect in for the challenges that the, you know, the, the person who's aging faces. And I think there's far too little um, appreciation of the, the real rigor and mental fortitude it takes to age. It's a really tough thing. And one of the other problems is the, the sheer nature of aging means that it's sometimes a very solitary journey that you're going on, especially if you reach a great age, if you're 90, 95, 100, maybe you've lost your close friends and family members. What you're talking about opens up a new door to embrace other people who you might not be able to see every day, but you can be part of that same community. Yeah, I mean, that's just incredibly powerful. I, I often, if I'm impatient with my folks or something, I, I try to imagine what it would be like if I didn't have 90% of the friends I have. Or I couldn't hear as well or walk, you know, the kind of sensory deprivation that a lot of aging people live within. And those are those are things we can really improve upon and help. And I think this idea that you, you need to be, we all need to be surrounded by a group of peers who are experiencing the same thing provides enormous comfort and motivation to people. How are fellow uh, physicians and doctors that, that you meet and talk to, maybe those that you're not close to, those that are, are new to this kind of research, how are they responding to the, the concept of a virtual doctor? Well, I think they realize that their quality of life as a physician, at least in the United States, has deteriorated remarkably because the amount of just compliance work we have to do 
And the, the things that pull us away from direct patient care are enormous. So anything that can bring them back to being able to do what they train to do, which is face-to-face treat patients. And if that means treating larger numbers of patients remotely on an exception-based level, meaning if they're okay, they don't need to come in and just monitoring them is very attractive. Also in terms of aging, I mean, we have, we have for the first time in history, I think there are something like 10,000 people a day turning 80. So this idea that we just cannot care for the number of people who are aging uh, with the number of physicians we have, particularly physicians knowledgeable in aging medicine, is enormous, and we realize we have to do something. This all sounds quite expensive. Are the funds there? Is there the, dare I say it, the political will in this country to help promote your kind of work? Well, the great thing about the great thing about digital solutions is they tend to scale, and they tend to take cost out of the system because people aren't the biggest expense in a medical system are employees in the bricks and mortar buildings, yet they're very disruptive. So the problem is that people don't really understand what this will look like, how to implement it within the internet of things, how to study it, make sure these digital solutions are safe and effective and how to scale them and how to get them paid for. So it's more the business model. I mean, I would think about it in the same way that digital has disrupted music or media or entertainment. It's been kind of a a slog and a stumble as much as anything else. One thing's clear, people have disrupted those industries because important needs were met with digital that weren't being met otherwise. And um, hopefully some of the casualties of that disruption and some of the lack of uh, rigor and reporting, for instance, and things like that won't play out in medicine where you've got a bunch of unqualified people weighing in like you do in media. I could I could say you've got a bunch of untrained people acting as reporters and generating news. We certainly don't want to repeat that in medicine. Interesting you mentioned music because it's a great analogy, I think, because there was so much reluctance when music went digital. There is still some reluctance to the delivery methods of music, but we now have artists who are 100% embracing the new way to do things. There's an almost inevitability about it. It is, and I would, but, you know, we have to provide the evidence that these things work, that they're safe, effective, and better. And we have to develop the digital research infrastructure so we get more people in the world taken care of when they need it. I mean, it's just a, everyone, it's, it's just, a, I think, a fundamental right, and we can actually do that with digital medicine. So we need to, uh, hurry up and, and, and get going. We feel a real sense of urgency with our work. And that's something actually we haven't touched on, the potential to provide healthcare to the third world, to people who perhaps would never see a doctor in the normal course of events. But yeah. now using this technology, they can. Absolutely. I mean, in areas where people are underserved or there, there is no infrastructure, maybe there only needs to be two types of hospitals in certain countries, a cancer hospital, a a, a, a you know, a prenatal and, and birth hospital and a, um, and a heart hospital, you know, and everything else can be handled outside the walls of a, of a major medical center. That would take a lot of infrastructure costs gone. And if the, if the cost of that were only, you know, um, a later generation internet-connected phone and maybe a body-worn sensor and a data plan, that would be pretty good. We've mentioned the virtual doctor. What else are you working on right now that's particularly exciting to you? One of the things I think is great and very exciting for patient education and as an empathy builder, and there needs to be a lot more understanding and empathy around 
care of particularly chronic disease is the use of virtual and mixed reality to solve important medical problems. So we're using, for instance, um, we're trying to improve outcomes after major surgeries, for instance, for cancer, by allowing people to go into these virtual reality environments where they're able to meet their surgeon, uh, the personnel in the operating room, understand why they're having the surgery, build that trust we talked about, and if there are complications, be able to manage them and have that information go everywhere so that when they actually go through that operation, it's not so traumatic for them and they adjust better on the other side. Um, in medicine, we've really done a great job at these life-saving surgeries and improved longevity, but we've done a horrible job at preparing people for what they're about to go through and um, really kind of acclimatizing them to that experience before they, they do it. We just, it's kind of shock and awe. And it really doesn't work very well. People get very traumatized afterward. We don't measure that very well. And I think it really impedes our outcomes, particularly in kind of high-tech medicine like we, high, you know, tertiary medicine like we practice in the United States. I think it gives us, actually, we get a bad rap for it and we can easily fix it. Because it's not the technology we want to go away. It's not the cutting-edge therapies. It's just the experience we want to make better. It's the sharing of information that hasn't been traditionally done particularly well. Absolutely. And I mean, think about if you're able to go through the operation that your mother is going to go through and you can, you know, then have a real sense of what it's like. Imagine if we can put someone in a VR experience and show them what it's like to wake up from an operation and all the sights and sounds. And we think that will be a very powerful tool, both for people who've been traumatized and are showing adjustment disorders after major diagnoses and before on both to almost train them to go through it. I know you were also involved in a project where essentially your glasses your eyewear, had sensors within them to, again, follow people's activity. How did that go and how, how did that work? Yeah, that, that's been a really interesting project we did with a vision service provider, Global, a large insurer of eye care, and they built into their prescriptive eyewear a sensor, an activity sensor, and we built an application around that that allowed people to track their activity in a social network um, just by putting on their glasses. And the more that they did... Uh, they were able to give to a charity of their choice and share that information with a social community. And that turned out to be a very powerful experience that a lot of people engaged in. And frankly, you know, many older people do wear glasses. So instead of having to put something else on, maybe you can get activity information just from your glasses. And as things like augmented reality and other things in technologies evolve, wouldn't it be great to be able to get all the digital information from a set of glasses? So for instance, Maybe you have a heads-up display in your glasses that show you what you did activity-wise and when it's time to take your medicine. Maybe you could take a phone call. Maybe you could figure out that you're too hot and you need to cool down or something else. Head-up display like a lot of people have in their cars. Yeah, that would just, you so know. the words just appear, the numbers just appear yeah. straight in front of or you. Or maybe if it's even a half to think, maybe you get a little vibration if it's time to take a drug or take a drink. And that leads me, and I actually don't come into this, but I think some people listening will think, this is technology going too far. And there's you know, there's a point that you can go before you begin to think, am I a machine? Am I a computer? Where does humanity end and begin? I ask myself about that a lot. You know, the one thing we want to do is is good and not evil and preserve what's best about, about us. For myself, when I think about it, I think I really want to be like Captain Sully. I want to land the plane in the <laughs> Hudson, but autopilot can do the rest. And people really want my expertise for, for my expertise, not for me to do all these repetitive tasks. So I, I kind of, for, from a patient standpoint, I think we really need to make sure 
that this data is protected, that it's private, that it's respected, and it's not used against a particularly a vulnerable population, which is a, a challenge. But I work just as hard on things like cybersecurity and FDA regulation and data supporting the use of these things as I do on anything. So we're trying to do it responsibly. And what have you learned about body computing, about all of this technology that you talk about every day that you apply to yourself? I'm a much more empathic doctor and I'm designing everything much more for patients than I've ever been in my whole career. I always just design devices for the heart, almost as if thinking that if I made the heart better, the patient would get better secondarily. So it's a whole different way for medical doctors to look at things. And, and everyone, medical device companies, pharma, the patient is the customer. So I think a lot more about design. What I've learned about myself is um, that you can basically track everything and that I can extend um, myself over a much broad, my expertise to a much broader uh, group of people. And that almost justifies my life in a, in a very profound way because why would I work this hard to reach so few people? Why not? And to think of being able to do that to all medical experts, that's just so exciting. It's exciting for any doctor I speak to, too. What do you track every day? Oh, I track a lot of things. I track everything, actually. I track. I should track my food a little better. I'm going to start. <laughs> but I track. Uh, I track all my activity. I track my EKG. I track my oxygen. I track my blood pressure. I track a lot of things. I, I use myself as a guinea pig for a lot of the sensors I use. And I try new applications. I use my family members. I use my dog. I put a lot of sensors on my dog. Um, how do you do that? And how does oh, that I attach it to her body in some way and try to record a metric uh, because you know. I, it's a living thing. You know, we can track health of one of the big things with pets, right, is veterinary bills. We can keep our pets going too longer. So I'm interested in that. And from the data that you've gathered from yourself through your own tracking, has there been a day when you've looked at the data and thought, hmm, I didn't realize that. I better change something. Absolutely. Yeah. I diagnosed my own hypertension, a lot of different things. Yeah. I've diagnosed, um, people on plane, like really diagnosed, not just, oh, there's someone sick on a plane, but oh, there's someone sick on a plane and they're having a heart attack. Very different thing. Uh, I had planes land because of diagnostic sensors I've had on my phone. Um, I found things out in basically every public, because I always have sensors on me or around me. Um, in many different situations, I've had great discovery. And if you could give one piece of advice to, to someone with their longevity in mind, and I'm leaving aside, don't smoke, stop smoking, never smoke. I think that's a, that's a given. What piece of advice would you give people? I would tell people to start to um, really quantify themselves in a way. I think everything's important. Track your food a little bit in one of the food apps. Track um, because what you think you eat or drink is often very different from what you actually do. Strive for moderation, consistency, and um uh, in both exercise and nutrition and in, in hydration. I think that'll take you a long way toward living a healthy life. Get regular evaluations uh, for screening and um, try to get sleep. Sleep is crucial. Sleep I, I is would put sleep at number one on the list. Diet's great, exercise is great, but if you don't sleep... That's true. You well, if you, do you, know, you know, again, if you don't eat well and you're not hydrated and you're not exercising, sleep is also harder. Right. It's all, it all ties together. Looking ahead to the future, I mentioned that the center has been in existence for now for, for almost 11 years. Crystal ball time, look ahead 10 or, or 20 years time. Where will we be with this we'll technology? Have sense, we'll have sensors embedded in our body that we, so we won't have to do anything to sense our metabolic status or physiologic status, meaning our blood glucose or lactate or heart rate or breathing rate or oxygen or 
blood pressure. So we'll get this kind of continuous health report. And we'll really be able to optimize our engines in a way that um, we've never been able to before. And I think that will create real benefit. This is actually something we spoke to uh, Dr. Ben Huang from uh, a company in San Francisco a few weeks ago, developing a micro sensor to do exactly uh, as you're describing. Yeah, I know, I know of that company, and they're doing great work. But I, I absolutely agree with him. I think, and that will be the seamless thing. That will be the seamless interface. That will, you know, you don't have to do much except get up in the morning. You'll get a report. Exciting. Yeah. Thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you. Really interesting. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. If you'd like to review us on iTunes or your podcasting platform of choice, we'd be very grateful, especially if it's a five-star review, which is always very helpful. You can contact us through our website, llamapodcast.com. You can follow us and leave messages on Facebook and Twitter at Llama Podcast. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Ruud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibers that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.